Turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 5, and we'll be looking at verses 1 to 11. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. I'm going to read through it, and then we'll have a look at it together. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one would, will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good, the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. One of the uh, most common objections to Christian belief, and indeed, you could say theistic belief, just belief in God, but I'll concentrate obviously on Christian belief, is the problem of evil. Um, that takes this form. Um, if God is all-knowing, he knows all about what's going on in your life. If God is all-powerful, surely he can address all of the problems in your life. And if God is morally perfect, as if he is holy, then he would want to address all the problems in your life and my life. But he doesn't. At least you don't think he does. Apparently, just taking things on the surface, you look and you say to yourself, well, I don't know. I mean, there's an awful lot of wear and tear and suffering and pain going on in this world. Is God there? I mean, does he, is he all that? Is he really who the Bible describes him as being? Now, of course, you know that the Bible from Genesis to the maps is all about evil. This is not a question that takes the biblical writers by surprise. It's an it's a issue that they deal with directly. Nevertheless, when those times come in my life and in your life, we do wonder, don't we? Like, you know, I, I, I mean, I understand that God is powerful. I understand he knows what's going on. I confess that. And I don't feel that always. And this is an objection that becomes especially important when you think about the, the promises that the Apostle Paul has given in the early chapters of Romans. You have Paul describing what God is doing as a manifestation of his righteousness, and that's going to break down into two forms. One of them is going to be the impartial manifestation of God's wrath against both Jew and Gentile, all who sin. That's going to occupy Paul for the first part of his, uh, <clears throat> his letter. You're going to go all the way from 
118 to 320. That's going to be about the impartial wrath of God against all who sin. And this is the part of their letter that contains some of the most harrowing descriptions of sin that you can imagine. I mean, you, you, you see this and you think to yourself, there's no hope. I mean, if this is really what we're like, how on earth can we possibly survive in the presence of a holy God? Listen to what Paul says in describing our condition and just feel the, the, the uh, fear, the holy fear that this should create. Listen to what he says. This is <clears throat> verse 9. He's talking about wrapping up this argument about the manifested wrath of God against all sinners. Verse, verse 9 of chapter 3, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, hear that word all, both Jew and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of snakes is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Then Paul summarizes, verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. And then listen to this statement, that every mouth may be stopped. Everybody is made to shut up in the presence of God. Take All defense is taken away. You have nothing to claim for yourself. Not one single particle of righteousness in the sight of God. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Then you have that marvelous pivot. Chapter 3, verse 21, but now. But now. And then you have God rushing into the rescue, and his rescue of both Jew and Gentile is as impartial as has been his wrath. And he talks about Jesus Christ as a mercy seat put out into the most accessible place. He describes it as pushed forth out to where both Jew and Gentile can access the mercy seat of Christ. And you have these marvelous promises that by faith, by faith alone, according to the perfect grace of God alone in an expression of his love, you have us saved from that wrath of God. Now you listen to that, and you think to yourself, <laughs> that's too good to be true, right? Didn't it feel that way sometimes? If it were not written in the Bible, would you believe that? That it's just by faith? That it's just by trusting in God? This plea that he gives you throughout the Bible, you do wonder about that, right? But it is true. It is by faith. And in fact, chapter 4 of Romans is all about pressing upon us the fact that faith has always been the point of contact between us and God. It has always been his fundamental call upon humanity. Just trust me. Just trust me. Will you do that? Will you trust me to do what you can't do. 
And that's the gospel, that God provides for our rescue from his very wrath. That's what chapter 4 is telling you. But now you have chapter 5, and then comes this objection, which I gave you right from the start. If we still suffer right now, if we do, you can imagine people thinking, well, maybe what Paul said isn't quite true. You see, I'm still suffering. Maybe, this is the question, maybe I'm still under the wrath of God. Maybe the suffering that I'm going through is an indicator. This is God telling me, know the gospel that you have believed, which puts faith at its center and the finished work of Christ at its center. No, maybe that really isn't true. And this passage that we'll look at today is addressing that very issue. Paul is saying, no, don't you believe it? We can have peace even through suffering. That's what he's telling you is going on in these first 11 verses. We can have peace even in the midst of suffering. And our experience of suffering is not evidence that this gospel in which we have trusted is false. That is not the conclusion you're to reach because of suffering. And he's going to give you six reasons to believe this. First of all, verse 1, notice with me, 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What is Paul saying? He's saying, I'm going to tell you right now, I, the apostle Paul, with the, with the authority of God, I am telling you this is the truth about you. I'm telling you what your condition is. I'm telling you with the authority given to me as an apostle that you do, in fact, have peace with God. No wonder that in the book of Acts and in Galatians as two very prominent examples, the, the status of the apostle Paul as an apostle, as one authorized to speak for God the truth into your life, is such a prominent theme. Over and over again, you have, for example, in the book of Acts, the vindication of the Apostle Paul as a genuine man sent from God to speak for God as he goes before governors and kings and testifies to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why say all that? Because we have to believe that Paul is for real. In these times, when we think about suffering and difficulty, we need to believe that Paul is real, and when he speaks, he speaks for God to you and to me. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at this. We are justified. We're acquitted. We're overclothed, if you like, with the perfect righteousness of Christ. His righteousness is reckoned to your account just as surely as the sin of Adam was reckoned to your account in the fall. Just as surely. In chapter 5, verse 12 and following, that will be Paul's argument. We're justified by faith, by trust. We now have peace with God, and it all comes through our Lord Jesus Christ, a perfect recapitulation of the argument that he's given thus far. Those four elements were justified. It is by faith we now have peace, and it all comes through Jesus Christ and him alone. Look with me now in verse 2, where Paul says, We know 
This is part of the basis of how we know that we can have peace in the midst of suffering. This is why, number two, we know that God's glory will be revealed to us. We look forward to that and we know it's going to happen. Look at verse two, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Notice that phrase, in which we stand, the permanence of it, the security of it, the reality of it. We stand now in that grace as surely as I'm standing here or more surely still in this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Paul has said, as I mentioned before, there is a manifestation that is going on in the plan of salvation and what God is doing for us. He is manifesting his wrath. He is manifesting his grace. You see that, that's part of what Paul is saying. And then he is saying, he will surely, absolutely, without fail, as much as he's done those previous two, he will manifest his glory. God is determined to manifest his glory. And the way in which that glory comes to us is by him rescuing you from sin and placing you before the risen Lord Jesus Christ as one of his that he has bought. This is the glory of God. This is what God wants. This is what he has purposed to do from the foundation of the world. And nothing is going to keep him from doing that. Paul says in chapter 8, verse 18 and following, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. See all these similar themes. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Okay, that's going to happen, right? We're going to be manifested in that way. That's who we are. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Verse 21, so that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This is the same theme. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, we ourselves, those times especially of difficulty and suffering, when the word groan, you look at that, sometimes you think, I don't know, that seems over the top. And then you find out you're in the middle of that suffering and groaning is not a big enough word. It's not a big enough word. We groan together in the pains of childbirth until now. Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. God's plan includes his manifested glory. And a part of what that's going to include is you being publicly, in effect, adopted as sons and daughters. You're recognized in the presence of God. He points his holy finger at you. And instead of saying, you there, oh man, who might have answered back to God, oh no, not this time. No, you are his. You belong to him. And that will be true. It is true now, even in the midst of suffering. 
Verses three to five, third reason. Our suffering has a godly purpose. If you wonder to yourself, well, what would be the point after all of the suffering that we could go through? Why? I mean, why is this happening? Part of the reason is that our suffering has a sanctifying effect. It serves a godly purpose. If you look with me in verse 3, it says this, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. You see it then. You see endurance, you see character, you see hope. Start with endurance. Suffering produces endurance. So I I mentioned, of course, uh, not attempting to jump up onto this platform in a box jump. I've made this point before. People who uh, do CrossFit, I'm partly in an awe of them, but partly confused because it looks like it's suffering, self-inflicted. Like, you know, I just find a brick wall and just beat your face against it. You know, it's painful. Like, but, of course, you know that they get to be in incredibly good shape. They can do all, they, they can like lift me over their head 10 times, you know, after having run a mile. It's crazy what they do. And, of course, you don't get that way overnight, do you? You get that way. Well, I'm never going to get that way, but you, 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 you get that way <clears throat> gradually, right, through exercise, through placing your body through the adversity that produces the endurance that you're looking for. And there's a sense in which that's what suffering does for us. It produces endurance. It produces stick to It produces a steadfastness in times of difficulty. And that pleases God. <clears throat> it pleases God when we grow up into Christ into the perseverance that we ought to have as his. Verse 4, what else happens? Well, endurance produces character. Endurance produces character, proven character, tested character. People who have been through difficult times, I think you would agree, um, when you talk to them, and you find out that about them, you find out what they've been through, you realize, you know, I guess... I'm not surprised that they're as substantive as they are when I know what their background has been. My grandparents on my mother's side, um, they served for a long time in Western Borneo as missionaries. Um, My grandfather's career lasted 60 years um, in Western Borneo. So he started when... uh, just before the Japanese invasion of Borneo. So he had to escape from that. Um, But, you know, in those early days, you would see um, these pictures that he would take of uh, the Dayak tribe, and they they look exactly like your image in your mind of the wild headhunter from Borneo. That's exactly what they look like. Their villages would have skulls on poles. They would... um, the, the Japanese, this is an interesting thing, like the Japanese, when they invaded Western Borneo, his tribe, this is strange, it's the one tribe they said, not going to try to conquer them. No, Mm-mm. nope, because they were that fierce. And throughout his career, he, he went through so many difficult times, so many points of adversity, so many points of victory as well, but you realize 
No wonder that when, when I really started to get to know him in his 70s, he's, he's different. You know, you meet this person and you realize he doesn't, nothing scares him. Nothing worries him. He's as rooted as a person can be. Can I use the phrase in these days? He's as based a person as you can imagine. He's just not moving. I mean, he knows what he believes. He knows the God he serves. And he is confident of the future. He's with the Lord now. When I knew him, man, as soon as you talk to him, you realize he's been through something and come out of that and has grown in the Lord because of it. Same with my grandmother. Same thing. Crises, they're the calm ones because they've been through it. Suffering produces character, and then character produces hope. And that hope is the confidence that God will surely do what he has promised to do. He has made promises to you, and his own divine honor rests upon the fulfillment of those promises. That's how ironclad they are. Verse 5, God assures us of his love. This is another reason to be confident that the gospel is real and that our faith is real. And yes, we are on our way to glory, even in the middle of suffering, when you find out that God assures us himself of his love. Look at verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God love, God's love, and I love this phrase. Look at what he says, is, is poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You know what happens when you pour water into something? It fills every space. Fills every single space. It permeates everything. And the Apostle Paul uses that term to to suggest to you the permeation of the confidence of God's love by the Holy Spirit poured into your heart. Now, that doesn't make sense when, you, when you're thinking about it from a distance and you're just trying to analyze it purely logically. You think about that, you're like, well, I, <laughs> I don't know. Like, people going through suffering, is this true? Like, do they think this way? And you know what happens? You find out they do say this. People who have been walking with the Lord will say, you know, I, <laughs> I've had so much trouble lately. So many difficulties coming at me from every angle, and I should be losing my mind right now. I actually should, like naturally speaking. I should just be losing my mind right now. And they're not. And they'll tell you, I I don't get it, but I know that God loves me anyway, even though I'm going through this. And when you hear those kind of testimonies, what you need to understand is you have just heard the testimony of something like a miracle that has occurred in that person's life. God has visited that person with power and assurance. And the Apostle Paul is saying, we know that this is true, that God assures us of his love. And when he assures us of his love, that means that in the middle of the suffering that we go through, what we don't want to conclude, we dare not let ourselves conclude, is that the suffering itself is evidence against the truth of the gospel in which we have placed our hope. No, because God loves you and brings the assurance of that love, even the middle of suffering. Verses 6 through 8. 
reason number five that we can have assurance is that God rescued us at our worst, not our best. God has rescued you at your worst. Now you think about that for a minute, like, okay, we're not going to take a poll and have people testify out loud, but I'll bet you everybody in this room has your Mount Rushmore, anti-Mount Rushmore of sins in your life. You're like, who? Right? The four worst things you've ever done, the cheapest, worst, awful things, right? You know, we think about that, right? Just the things that, man, if God's wrath is going to get you for anything, it's going to be those top four or five or whatever. And what Paul is saying to you is that in your worst moment of your life, when you are behaving as in the way that is maximally ungodly, at that time, knowing full well that's who you really are, <laughs> God arranged for your rescue. And the suffering of Jesus on the cross had those particular sins in play. They are what he is suffering for. God knows exactly which ones they are. The entire rap sheet of your life, past, present, and future, is particularly being suffered for on the cross. And God does that. Why? He, he, at your very worst, he does that because it pleases him to rescue sinners like you. You know how you know you, know you have a, every qualification in the world to be a Christian? You know how you know? It just, this is how you know. You're a sinner. That's how, what makes you qualified. You're a sinner. And Paul says, look, verse 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time, you know what the right time is? When you were weak, that's what the right time is. Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Verse 8, but God shows his love for us. He manifests his love for us. How? In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While you were paying no attention to God, while you were treating him, as my grandfather used to say, with ignoration. <laughs> I don't care about God. I don't care about any of that. I've got my life. I'm doing my thing. I don't care. Like, you know, this is you. This is me. At some point, that's who we are. And looking at you, you sinner and me too, God saved you and arranged for your sins to be atoned for in full on the cross of Christ. While we were at our worst, God rescued us. So now in the middle of suffering, are you at your worst? Nope. Then would God have his wrath over you now in the middle of the suffering? No, of course not. Paul's saying, when we were at our worst, God rescued us. Verses 9 to 11. Number six, the reason for our, our sense of confidence that in the middle of suffering, we still have peace with God, it's this. God gave us his son when we were his enemies. When we were his enemies. When we were doing all those things that I read about earlier, coming from chapter 3 of Romans, we were doing those kinds of things. 
or things similar. When our fist was in the air, so to speak, when we're looking at the heavens, like, no, (laughs) okay, right? Defying God in all the different ways that we do that. While we were his enemies, God gave his son for us. Verse 9, since therefore we now have been justified by his blood, justified, made righteous in Christ, Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We're enemies. Used to be. Used to be God's enemies. We're born on the wrong side of that battle line. We just start out that way, being born on the wrong side of the battle line. And if God had permitted our lives to play out the way they naturally would, there we would be now. You know, we have that that phrase there, but for the grace of God go I. Yeah. All you have to do is a little bit of imagining, not much, to extrapolate on what your life would be like right now apart from the grace of God. Just think about what that would be, how creatively awful you and me could be right now if it were not for the decisive intervention of God in rescuing us from evil. And Paul says that when we were his enemies— when we were arrayed against him in every way, at that time God gave the most precious gift he could conceivably give, and that is his son. One drop of whose blood is more precious than the entire universe. That's what he gave for you and for me. And if he would do that, while you and I were his enemies— Do we now believe that the sufferings that we're going through are evidence that this gospel in which we've trusted is not true? No. God has already given us his best. We wonder about evil and suffering. It's a question that's always going to be with us between now and the end of the age. Because we're, we're, we're human beings. We suffer. We have pain. We have difficulty. We go through trials. And you see in Peter, you see it in James, you see it here. God is aware of that, and he ordains that. And we don't like the fact that he ordains it, but it is a part of his plan. And in those times, when we go through difficulty, as I say, it is very tempting. We all know this is true. It is tempting to question our relationship with God, to say to ourselves, I, you know, I don't know. Yeah, a lot of promises in the Bible, but I don't feel like they're true just now. And the Apostle Paul is saying, stop. Don't do that. Don't make it worse. Don't tell yourself that this gospel is untrue. I leave you with the words of an apostle that 
the Apostle Paul one time had to tune up when it came to the truth of the gospel and the sufficiency of faith in Christ alone. Peter makes more references to suffering than any other writer by, by, by verse density. Listen to this, what he says, and I'll conclude with this. Chapter 1, verse 3 of 1 Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us. See the proactivity of that. He has caused us. Not just given us an opportunity, that's part of the dimension of that, but he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, reserved, no one's going to get to it and take it away, kept in heaven for you. Verse 5, who by God's power, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this, verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory because of the Holy Spirit's love being poured abroad in your heart. Verse 9, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Nothing I've said today minimizes suffering. I don't mean to do that at all. I know people go through things. I do. So do I. But we can have hope. And none of that suffering means that Jesus isn't risen, that faith isn't sufficient for our salvation, and that we will not one day see the glory of God, because we will count on it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do rejoice in the hope that you set before us. We thank you that it is ours, even though times of difficulty are real, they do happen. Father, help us to be faithful in those times, being strengthened by the hope we have. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.